0: Hey everyone, welcome to episode 34 of the So This Is My Why podcast. I'm your host and producer, Ling Ya, and today's guest is Sean Chong, a three time Diego world class Malaysian champion and renowned mixologist, most known for founding Omakase Appreciation and Bar Class Academy of Asia. But what does it take to be a bartender? And a multi award winning bartender at that? Because in case you didn't already know, the Diageo is a highly prestigious competition that brings together the very best mixologies in the world. And moreover, what does it take to run an omakasi bar? In fact, the only bar that was running kale for three years. And now, what does Sean have planned for the future? We deal with all this and more in today's episode. But before we begin, if you've been enjoying this show and would like an easy way to support it, Please leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help others find the show, and i really appreciate it. Now, are you ready? Let's go. Welcome to the So
1: This Is My Why podcast, where we talk to people about their whys and how they turn them into realities to inspire you to live your best life.
2: And here's your host, Ling Ya.
1: So you're going back to 1986? I grew up in Malaysia for the first five years. And then the next five years is what, I guess, shaped my life and changed it a bit different than your conventional Malaysian boy story. Because my dad was working for the Malaysian Industrial Development Authority, my And he got a posting to France. And so he decided to bring the whole family because it was a long posting. What was supposed to be three years became five years. So I went to international and British school, so it wasn't too foreign. But of course, I picked up French fluently at that time. But the thing that I would take away the most is every summer holiday, my dad is an avid traveler. So he would say, since we have these uh, six, seven weeks of your summer holiday, we'll go somewhere. He would actually drive. He would drive from Paris all the way to the south of France. He would drive from Paris all the way to Spain on one occasion. I think the furthest we've been by car is... From Paris all the way to Austria, all these trips allowed me as a child to see all these things. I was already exposed, like what Venice looked like, what Switzerland looked like, what the Alps looked like. So I guess this eventually allowed me to be more open-minded, especially when it comes to bartending, which I always say is a borderless profession. People drink everywhere in the world. People travel and they go to bars. The bartending as well. We travel the world to meet other bartenders or to visit other bars or to do guest shifts. So yeah, I think the five years in France has actually benefited me many, many years after.
2: I read that your dad allowed you to taste alcohol when you were young. So was this back in France or was it much later?
1: (laughs) It was in France. Because in France, you can actually get cider, like 1%, 2%. You can literally get it off the shelf. My first taste was five years old. I think my younger brother was even younger. It was like two. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So it wasn't drinking. It was just tasting. But still, the first taste was very, very young. When we came back to Malaysia, my dad was quite open with alcohol. Sometimes when we meet with his friends for family gatherings, and they would end with a whiskey or a Baileys, you know, as a digestive. And he would allow us to try like Baileys or whatever. And that was maybe, what, 10, 11 years
2: old. You went to SMK Bukit Bintang. Was that a shock to the system?
1: A very big shock. My school days were not easy especially for the first three years. So I came back in mid-1996. So I went to private school, but still generally the school system is pretty much the same. In France, I was in the Central School of Paris, but that was an American system. So it's a bit more open, it's a bit more casual, I guess, but it was still a big shock still coming back. The cultures are totally different, like in terms of the children, in terms of the teachers. Yeah, standard four and standard five, which I was in three and i those were tough years because I had to deal with students who didn't understand why you didn't speak Chinese. I had to deal with teachers that had a totally different attitude, the kena mara, kena rotan, all this kind of thing. So that was something I had to get used to. Break time, very hard time, you know, you're with all the other students, whereas in, in Europe it's very controlled. You have your break time, you actually eat together and everything. Having said that, I'm happy that I was allowed to Malaysianize again. And just to prove to my parents that this is not a mistake for doing this and this and this. So I worked hard. And I actually got like two A's and three B's in UPSR.
2: So at what point did you decide that you wanted to enter into the F&B industry, which led you to going to Taylor's?
1: I would say this is circa form three. 2001 by then i had already kind of a idea of what i wanted to do because my mom was the first one to teach me cooking even back in france so i guess i found an interest in that and i always asked her if she could teach me and then when you go to school they always have the hari jaya and you talk to counselors what do you want to be because they want to stream you right when you're from, point from five. and at that point i had already had an idea of what i wanted to be so i could easily fill out the form like What do you want to be? And one of them would be chef. I don't know whether it's something that was instilled by ancestors or whatever, but I guess I was money-minded. So I would ask my parents, what profession could make me rich in the future? And my parents being parents, they're like, oh, you could either be a businessman or a hotel manager. So I'm going to track back a little bit. Where I am today also stems from the traveling in Europe. Because we were traveling, my dad would actually have to book hotels. And my dad is a rogue booker. So he doesn't make any reservations. He'll just walk up and say, do we have a place for four to stay tonight? He's that kind of person. So we'll actually drive from hotel to hotel. If they didn't have a room, we had to drive to somewhere else. And occasionally, my dad would have to book a four-star hotel. So... I guess from the experiences of checking into hotels and sleeping in the room, I liked the environment that it really translated to the future. I said, okay, I think I could do hotel management. I like hotels when we were staying in France. About the time when I went into college, tailors had already really systemized the way you learn. The first year is all general. You learn everything about hotel management. So from the rooms to kitchen to restaurants. And then in your second year, you get to specialize. So which sector of the hotel do you want to improve your skills on? You could choose between three. So room divisions, which is either front office or housekeeping or F&B service or kitchen. So I chose F&B.
0: You were
2: participating in college drinks competition as well. You were making drinks as a hobby on the side. Am I right?
1: Yes. For some reason, I had already been very drawn to the bar, even at that college level. What I liked about Taylor's was we did proper restaurant service every week and you get to take turns to be the bartender. So you get to create a couple of drinks to sell and just generally operate the bar. Everyone wanted to be in a bar, but I think it was more so for the guys and even more so for me. So I was like... If there would be someone absent, I was like, I'll take over the bar, no problem. And there were small competitions within the college. So it started off with a very internal one, a very novice understanding of mixing drinks. After that, even the lecturers kind of saw that maybe I had a gift because I was doing very well in studies because I guess I was focused. I knew what I wanted to do. I became the top student all the way from the start until I finished my degree. I guess this just comes from being very focused on what you want to achieve. And I guess I had an ambition, but I just worked really hard. Maybe ego played a part because I know my classmates looked up to me. Okay, this guy knows what he's doing. He's performing really well. So a uh, few of them tied along with me. So they were like my core group. Which one or two of them also managed to obtain honors in the degree. So that was nice
2: so you ended up yeah. going to hilton kl and then you were working as a team member in census restaurant which i understand it's a fine dining restaurant yes. what was that transition like suddenly working in a professional fine dining atmosphere
1: because i had already done my internship with hilton so when it was time to actually go into the workforce my parents said if you could get into an international chain as an employee then maybe your future ambition will be fulfilled which was I wanted to travel. So if you can get postings to other properties, a global brand would help you. Okay, I'll try getting into Hilton. Luckily, the managers who saw me as an intern remembered me and said, yeah, yeah, we'll see if we can hire you. So this is quite a profound story for me. When I was an intern, I think this was 2015 in Hilton, I was stationed at the coffee house. And when you're an intern, you normally do the preparation, polishing glasses, polishing box and spoons, folding napkins. One day, I was folding napkins and this manager comes up to me. He taps me on the shoulder and says, boy, this is not your job. I'm like, what do you mean this is not my job? My supervisor gave me this task. It's my job. No, 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 this is not your job. And she brings me to the bar and he asked the supervisor there, Okay, this boy, you just teach him. But it's just to squeeze juice or whatever, you know, just teach this boy. So I'm like, I'm an intern. Why is this happening? I guess as a manager, he saw something in me. He learns fast, he can work. So I guess that's where he decided, okay, maybe we can try to see where his skills can take him. Fast forward, when I applied for a job, I went back to this manager and he kind of helped start my career. So his name was Bobby Shankar. My first job was in Boardwalk. Boardwalk was the poolside outlet. So it had food and you had the bar. I wanted to start from the bottom, so I was glad that I had to work in uh, poolside first before going down to fine dining. Because my goal is to be a general manager one day. But I guess again I, I proved my metal, and the manager's like, after three months, we're restructuring the FMB, and we need stronger people in fine dining. Would you like to go to fine dining? It was a bit intimidating at first because I didn't know what to expect. At that point, fine dining was quite a big thing in KL. And if you worked in fine dining, basically, there's a lot of expectations. But I guess, again, maybe it's really a calling. I just had a natural flair for service. It wasn't too difficult. I'm glad that I was transferred there because that really gave me a strong foundation for the years after in terms of the dining process, how you treat guests, how to understand uh, food and flavours because I work closely with the chef to understand the
2: dishes. You mean you have to understand the dish you're serving in case anyone asks you the different ingredients and what they complement?
1: So at that time we went really in depth how is this sauce cooked just in case there are ingredients or elements that go in that actually allergens to people. So from there... I learned to break down flavors. I learned what goes together in the dish. It even shows through now when I apply to making cocktails. Why does it go in? And I it's to you, like, what's inside? So yeah, Senses gave me a very strong foundation. But at Senses, there wasn't really mixed drinks because there was a lobby bar. So one of my mentors at the time was actually, of course, the chef, but also Roderick Wong. Roderick Wong was the founder of the Sommelier Association of Malaysia. And he guided me as well in terms of wines and understanding of the basics.
2: So soon after Diego World Class Pratins of the Year launched and there was an internal competition, Hilton, which you joined. Can you share a bit about how that all transpired?
1: The first competition that I did was called Finlandia, which, funnily enough, is almost exactly 12 years ago. And what the hotel does normally, when they want to send representatives from the hotel, they do an internal first. So they'll say, okay, every outlet you can send two participants to try out, then we'll select four from there to represent the hotel. So at that time, I had nothing to lose. I was like, I'm going to show whatever I know that hopefully gets me a spot in this competition. Before I left college, we did a special dinner in Taylor's, where Chef Patrick Sell, now the World Pastry Champion Captain, he was onto molecular stuff at that time, and he wanted to do a molecular gastronomy dinner. And so I did the drinks, and I had learned a few things from doing the dinner, like clarification, basically making like a jelly, but not. Out jelly which you can burst in your mouth kind of thing. Fast forward to Hilton, fortunately the census were using these kind of ingredients. I can use this certification technique in my drink in Hilton. And I guess that impressed the judges because the judges were the hotel managers. They were like, okay, this boy is fresh out of college and he seems to know more than our bartenders. And in that competition, that kind of sparked everything else. So it started with about 22, 24 participants from all around KL. That competition was intimidating. I'm up against people who are much more experienced than me. No, you know, two years, four years, six years. They all seem to look the part. I'm still like a student fresh out of college. Long story short, I came in run up. So I'm like, okay, maybe it's a look or something. So the Diageo competition, basically, because I had done very well in the Finlandia one, the managers were already like, you seem like a good candidate because you really won't run up. We'll automatically enter you for the next one. So Diageo was a very big competition. At that point in time, I had no idea what it was. It was a competition that really tests you as a bartender from your product knowledge to cocktail making, to your technique, to product knowledge, to communication.
2: I think at the time, it was quite a simple competition as well, right? Like now it's like six months long, but before it was a lot simpler.
1: Yes, yes. yes. It was simpler in a sense like you just need to come up with your signature cocktail presented and that's about it. So that happened in 2009. I remember that drink was called Sexy Chianurita and inspired by old-town white coffee hazelnut flavor. So that was one of my favorite coffees at the time. So I said, can I transform this into a drink? So yeah, worked with the chef. Not so much in the actual flavor of the drink, but how to present it and how to apply the overall experience in terms of drinking for competition.
2: How was the process like of creating this one drink?
1: So that drink was creamy. So it went from trying... Do I use full cream? Do I use just milk? Do I use cream and milk? Do I use normal hazelnuts? Do I roast the hazelnuts? Which liqueur is a sweetener? Do I use honey? Do I use agave syrup? Because I was using tequila. At that time, it was simplified because I had just like, okay, I want this hazelnut drink to transform into alcohol. What alcohol do I put it in? So I researched on cocktails that had similar structure. And then for some reason, I chose tequila and it worked.
2: So what was it like after you won? I think you seriously considered bartending as a career, right? And they soon shifted you to Vintage Bank.
1: Yes, I seriously considered, but I guess that's where managers really play a role. That's also translated into me being a business owner now and how I manage the team is to find people's talents and see how to groom it. The actual competition was also a very profound moment. It was held home ground in Hilton Kuala Lumpur. There was about 14 competitors. Some competitors I never met before, six years in the industry, eight years. So I said, okay, maybe I, I won't win. This is just for the experience. But I guess my managers had already trained me to do practice rounds and everything. So I was a bit more confident in doing it. So that competition was a kind of a fake it episode for me because I wasn't working in the bar. I was working in the restaurant. I don't have the skills to back me up, but I could perform that one drink really, really well. That coupled with the fact that I was fresh out of college, information was easy for me to absorb. There was a written examination for that competition. So I did quite well for that. And then coupled with the presentation, that boosted my points. I think it was tough. All the other competitors, they presented their drinks and they will ask questions like, why is your cocktail like this? And they'll ask product knowledge. Why are you using Kettle One? Where does it come from? What vodka what is it? Came to mind and then it was the same. So I had a story to tell and then when they ask questions like what is this tequila made from where does it come from? or other competitors they could answer maybe one question and then they can't answer the next one but I answered all my questions. After my round, the host of the competition, he declared me winner on the spot. So I'm like, is this is a dream or something no, I don't think this should happen I should wait for the announcement no he declared me winner on the spot. That was profoundly just like, okay, that means I might have something here. So yeah was the champion for Malaysia 2009. Top three from Malaysia went down to Singapore. That was also very intimidating because Singapore already, in a way, established themselves as a place to drink. So they would bring us around and then you go to, to the competition venue, which at that point was at the St. Regis. We were going up against six other Singaporeans who were already bar managers and established bartenders. I came in and ran out. I said, okay, I could do this. But at the same time, it also said, I'm not a bartender because the second round was a speed round. Here's six drinks. Here's a mojito, old-fashioned, blah, 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 blah. Make it in eight minutes. So I had no experience to back me up. I never made a mojito in my life up to that point. I know of the recipes. I know of what it is, but I never made it. So I had no idea. And then I rightfully lost that year for the world-class competition because I would have shamed Singapore Malaysia if I had gone to globals. So after that, managers were like, okay, you're doing really well in bar, So no more fine dining for you. We're transferring you down to the bar." So that's when I transferred down to British Bank. I was transferred down as a team member first and promoted at the same time. So they said, they're going down to the bar and you're now a team lead. It was a challenge because I had no bar experience. And now coupled with the fact that I need to, in a way, supervise the team that was very new, that 2010, I tried entering competition again, but I didn't do so well because I concentrated my energy on building my career.
2: So what was the reason behind you leaving Hilton? Because you then went to be manager Restaurant while doing consultancy and organized gigs.
1: Correct. Partially, it was the hotel was not giving me what I want. I wanted to move up the ranks, couldn't get an assistant manager position. When I resigned, they didn't really counter-offer. So I was like, okay, I'm taking a job. And I guess I just wanted to open my mind. I like to see a lot of different angles because people always tell me you work in a hotel is different, you work in an independent restaurant is different. So I just wanted to see what it is actually like to work in an independent restaurant.
2: So what were the differences? Yes.
1: Big difference. First of all, the hierarchy. Hotels, you have a hierarchy, you have a system. You have your manager, you have your other departments to report to, you have your GM. Independent business has none of that. Your manager and everybody else. Your direct report is the owner. In a sense, there's no filter. Good or bad is for people to debate but there's no filter in terms of independently. Like, oh no, one wants this, you execute it. For, for sale, there's at least a filter. They'll decide where they should go, and then there's a discussion process, and then we implement it. After a uh, I left the company to pursue competition. In 2011, I went to the Diageo World Class again, won, and represented Malaysia in India. I came back to Malaysia, and then I had no job. So I went to Southern University. I was still doing consultancy. And at that point, I guess it was still, in a way, on good terms.
2: And you mentioned before that when you had a day ago, you learned a lot of lessons just from talking to these people. What yeah. were some of the major lessons that you felt you learned?
1: You need to know your stuff. Like when I went to a global finals in 2011, although I was the Malaysian champion, but because I was not working in a dedicated cocktail bar, I could not really carry out a conversation about our profession. Like how do you make an old-fashioned? What is a Negroni? A on the of Day, I could not have this conversation because the experience was not behind me. Because I was working in a restaurant that needed to make fruity star cocktails that appealed to, to girls and whatnot. Although I'm a Malaysian champion, but I'm really, really lacking in terms of the basics as a bartender. I don't have the foundations of the cocktail recipes and all this in my fingertips. That was the biggest lesson overall. I'm not a complete bartender at that point. So that's what pushed me to open my own bar.
2: Eventually, you opened Omakasa and appreciate in April 2013 with your partner, Carl Tu, who I understand you met at Tate. How did that all happen?
1: So, yeah, we met at the competition, but we never really kept in contact. When Carl was at Tate, somehow he reached out to me because I was freelancing. I had a lot of free time. I would visit him three to four times a week. I would just go and hang out, you know. Then we we got to know each other a little bit and eventually we led to opening Ngomakase. At that point, we had a similar vision. He was quite into cocktails. For me, I wanted to improve myself. And At that point, there was no bar or hotel that would hire me to allow me to improve because you're always constrained to the systems. So yeah, I said I had to open my bar if I really wanted to learn how to make a dry martini all these classic cocktails.
2: When did that urge to open your own bar start?
1: I think it was 2011, 2012. Because one Chinese New Year, one of my aunties were like, oh, my daughter has a cafe in Lebo Bo Ambang. She needs a bit of help. She's not an F&B person, but you uh, seem to be doing well in drinks. Can you go and help her? So I said, yes, okay, I will go and help and see what I, how I can help. And from meeting her, I met the owner of the building, which is the owner of Ming and X. And just out of the room, they were like, Hey, we have a space downstairs. You might know what to do with it. It's been vacant for years. We don't know what to do with it. And at a point, I had already traveled to Singapore and there were already kind of specialty bars. I said, okay, this will be perfect for a speakeasy. But at that point of time, I was supposed to be posted to Jakarta for a job under Diageo. But economy was not doing well in the region. So they cut the position and I was left with no job. Then I was like, okay, I need to do something now. So then I said, okay, let's see if we can open the bar.
2: Were you a bit concerned because, as I understand, the first three years that you were open, you were the only speakeasy in town. So it was brand new in this country at least. But you were convinced it would take off.
1: I was not convinced. I was convinced with my talent. I was convinced with what I can do with drinks and the exposure I have. I was not confident whether the business would take off.
2: It was unusual. It was just pure word of mouth. People can't even find the door if they don't know what they're looking for.
1: Yeah, it was really a big risk. It was probably set up for failure. But yeah, I think the, the stars were aligned and things were working for us. Yeah, it worked. Seven years.
2: <laughs> yeah. And you were inspired by the 1920s prohibition era in America for the whole setup. Yeah.
1: Well, at that point of time, when you're into the global bartending scene and I met people from around the world, you kind of get a little bit of intel from all these people and at the time, the cities that people would look to for bartending would either be London or New York. These are like very established cocktail markets. And one of the bars that were already that was making waves in the world at that point in time was a bar called PDT. Please don't tell in New York. So they were one of the first SpeedyZs to really globalize their brand. Like it really got out there. Everyone knew PDT, the new speakeasy of the world, and a lot of other bars followed through. So we just wanted to jump in on this trend. This seems cool. It's a no-brainer. 1920s prohibition. Speak easy. You know, it already says cocktails.
2: But it was something of a high-risk business, right? You had trouble even getting a loan from banks just to get it off the ground.
1: At that point, I was, what, 26 years old? I guess I had a nothing-to-lose kind of mentality. I'm young. So if I fail at this, I have a chance. So we were going around trying to see how to make it work. It was from possibly joint venturing from the management team of the building. They were not confident in our idea because there was no one else in KL doing it. The next step was trying to get other people involved with the business, like investors. But even investors were like, we don't know if it's going to work. So no. And then luckily, one year, I set up the courage to ask my uncle. He was back for Chinese New Year. I was like, I want to open a bar. Would you help me to invest? <laughs> I knew that he was one of the uncles who was rich. So I was like, okay, let's just try it. <laughs> I don't know if he believed in the idea yet. But I guess he believed in me as a nephew. Okay, I think this is something worth investing in to help you build your future. And yeah, he lent me one hundred thousand and I managed to see what I can do with one hundred thousand.
2: Must have been stressed though, although it all worked out because he managed to repay in a year. Eighteen months. Eighteen months,
1: I think we mm-hmm. paid back. But yeah, it was stressful. It was stressful because there's a new business owner, all these credit terms, and there's always that part when age is not on your side at that point. Luckily, people knew who I was from all my competition and everything, so that helped. But if let's say I was totally new, you need to prove your records.
2: So how do you guys come up with the omakase concept? And to blend your two styles, because you're quite a Japanese approach, right? Whereas Carl is more of a westernized approach. So how do you blend all that together since it was such a bartender-centric speak
1: Well, first of all, we went with the omakase because we had no idea how the Malaysian market would respond. And if we did omakase, we have a chance to at least guide your experience. At that point, really, unless you were from the US or the UK, most Malaysians didn't know what a dry martini was, what the proper cosmopolitan was. So at least with the Omakase style, you can tell us, oh, you want something vodka that's a bit fruity, then we'll make you a Cosmo. We had a chance to guide your experience and also guide your education in terms of learning cocktails. We blended that with our styles just to offer something different. In uh, 2012, let's do something that no one's ever done before, which was firstly an L-shaped bar inverted. Most of the time it will be L where bartenders on this side and customers on the other side. So this is an inverted L. And we just want to say most bars have standard stations. There's no difference in style. But I'm Japanese style and you're Western style. Can we do two different stations? So we said, okay, let's try it. <laughs> so yeah, that actually worked because we actually managed to display different styles of bartending, different ways of making cocktails. In the sense, like my approach is different from Carl's. The same drink can essentially taste different depending on your foundations.
2: And you guys were changing menus all the time. I think once a month to like once every six to eight weeks.
1: It was getting stressful towards end of two and a half to three years. In the first two years, it was still fun. We were changing menus every month. So why we changed every month was one, just to offer something different to customers every month. Secondly, was to accelerate our learning. So I built Omakase to actually train myself. I want to be the best at making classic cocktails. I want to know all the 70 to 200 cocktails that's in the international classic cocktails. So then we would change the menu to put it on the menu that if someone orders it, at least we made that drink once. Even if it gets ordered once, at least we made it once. That was the idea. So that's why we changed it. We were doing two special drinks, so our own creations, and three classics. So we had a menu of 10 every month. We did that for more than two years every month, that it was... Then starting to take a toll on our inspiration for flavors. It's like a bit harder to draw inspiration and to make drinks. So we stretched it out to every six to eight weeks, we changed the menu. We were like in the deep end on Friday, Saturdays. Because we were the only speakeasy in town for three years. And we were busy after six months. So full on like Friday, Saturdays. So it was packed, 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 packed for months. So it came to a point where we were afraid of our own business. We were like, (laughs) it's so busy. Okay, just prepare for it and let's prepare for war kind of thing.
2: How did it even grow to such a huge extent when you weren't even marketing yourself?
1: I guess it really validates uh, the true marketing tool of word of mouth. People were just like, this is new Speakeasy in town. It's really cool. We want to show you what it is. And they do really good drinks. So I guess that was really the full factor. We were really consistent in our drinks. It was like, these are the best in KL. So there was no one to fight us at the time. No hotel, no pub come close to us so we were the place to go for cocktails and i guess it helped that we were in the city center so in the city center we also catered to tourists so a lot of tourists came and expats that are living in the city or working in the city they also managed to come and find us that helped because expats and international guests they actually do drink classic cocktails so they will actually come in to order whiskey sour a daiquiri a margarita these kind of things but yeah we really took off after three months
2: and you were also securing rather big names like right? guest bartenders to come in like Remy Savage to guess and they would sign yeah. your menus and you would frame it up on the wall. Yes,
1: yeah. yeah, so that has always been part of the plan because I started guest bartending since the, the agile time in 2011. So you go to other venues, you go to other countries to bartend. So we figured that would be a good promotional effort. And that was the only kind of promotional effort we did for the bar, which is to bring in these high-profile bartenders in to showcase different styles of drinks. So people were just like coming in throws. I remember the craziest one was actually Nico de Soto. So Nicolas Soto is actually the owner of Mace in New York and Danico in Paris. He came over and he's a global name. He could only come on Chinese New Year. So we actually opened on the second day of Chinese New Year. But it was packed to the brim. Like packed to the brim. The more recent one that we brought in was Hiroyasu Kayama-san. He's a barb and Felix in Tokyo. Also a global name because he did something on YouTube so everyone knows him. That one as well. It was... So packed. It was a good kind of packed.
2: (laughs) Was it hard to secure these big names?
1: Not entirely. Because usually a lot of partners like to do it out of goodwill. Like, oh yeah, sure, I've never been to Malaysia, let's see if we can make this work. Yeah. The only difficult part is to sort out the logistics, who will pay for whose flight. So that is when we will get alcohol supplies to kind of help foot the bill, then we'll use that brand. But yeah. otherwise, it wasn't too difficult because I had already been in the scene since 2009 through Diageo. So that already helped to propel me as the prominent bartender in Malaysia. At the same time, Carl, he's very big on social media networking. So he was already building the network overseas without even knowing them or meeting them in person. But he would like chat with them and say, I'm from Malaysia. So he had quite a bit to do with the guest partners coming in. And also, again, being the only bar for three years, friends who wanted to bring people in. This was the only bar they could feature.
2: Obviously, we're running this to learn how to run a bar properly. And the mise en place is the most important part. All the work yes. you do before you open.
1: So my staff come in at least one hour before to start prepping. So in the first year was us coming one hour earlier before to start prepping. Sometimes even earlier. But just an idea would be to press lemon lime juice fresh every day. We do our own homemade syrups. Maybe that we'll have to do once every week. Cleaning, a lot of cleaning is done before the bar opens. Apart from that, we didn't do too much, actually, because we weren't very big on advanced techniques to make cocktails. For example, using sous vide machines and all this kind of thing. We were very simplified in that way. But yes, mise en place and the preparation beforehand is super crucial. Our Fridays, Saturdays were very busy. If we did not prep enough lemon linders for those two days, we'll be deep shit when it comes to in the middle of the night. Because if we ran out, we just have to squeeze things on the spot and that takes time. So yeah, preparation before operation is always essential.
2: And certain things I read are very, very crucial to what you do, like lemon, sugar, ice. They're like different types of ice. And even the lemon, Malaysian lime is more sour than other limes elsewhere.
1: Correct. Correct. We taste the lime and lemon juice every day. So we get an idea in our minds. Even the same species of lime have different sourness and sweetness every day. So then we need to adjust our recipes. the you other know, the sugar syrup that we choose, influence texture. The ice is super important. How cold your ice is, the, the size and all this, it matters. There's so many things that go on behind the scenes, just like a kitchen. So much preparation that goes into making a dish. It's not as time-consuming as making a dish, but the similar process happens for drinks. Every element, like making sure there's enough stock. What gin do we choose for the drink? What sugar do we use? Do we use brown? Do we use white? Lemon juice? Do we get lemons from Turkey or do we get lemons from, I don't know, somewhere else? Or do we use Thai lines? Do we use Malaysian lines? Do we use calamansi for the ice? Do we use block ice? Do we use cute ice? Do we use crushed ice? So there are still many elements that we still need to decide on for the appropriate cocktail. It's not as time-consuming as behind the kitchen, but there's similar process and similar identifications of things that you need to do.
2: So within two years, you decided you wanted to give another shot at the Diego competition to see how you had grown. And you went to the global finals again for the second time.
1: That year was a highlight of my career because Ombaka Kase opened 2013. So basically about two years for me to practice. Attending and improving my technique and also understanding of flavors since we were changing menus every month understanding how to fuse flavors together so 2014 they announced that the global finals is going to be in Cape Town and I'm like I want to go to Cape Town so that was a kind of a driving force so 2015 was a highlight because not only did I win Malaysia again that year the competition itself had already expanded like it's a much longer process it's a full-on thing for basically almost 10 months of the year so basically I won. And then we progressed to the regionals. So the regionals was held in Bangkok at that year. Then we were competing against all the Southeast Asian countries. So Indonesia, Philippines, Singapore, Thailand, Vietnam, with the guest country at that year was Hong Kong.
2: You had a speed challenge competition in Bangkok, right? And then you made like nine drinks instead of eight drinks in eight minutes.
1: Yeah, that was like, it wasn't the plan. I was like, I had eight drinks. I completed it in seven and a half minutes. So I had 30 seconds. So I just poured a whiskey soda and one of my mentors was there. He loves whiskey soda. This is for you. So yes, technically I completed nine drinks in eight minutes.
2: I understand that there's a difference between a classic cocktail and a competition-style cocktail.
1: Yes, so classic cultures are basically your basic recipes. So if you're a chef, you will learn your basic recipes for your sauces. Like you have a cream sauce, you have a tomato sauce, you know, you have your basics. So similar for bar, we have our basic recipes, which are like dry martinis, which is just gin and vermouth. So then a competition style would usually be something of a riff of a classic or something totally original. So that's where you interject your original personality to the drink. After regional, going to Cape Town, it felt really nice because I felt like I was a full bartender, like I could carry out a conversation with you about drinks, I could discuss to you about technique or ice. I wouldn't say I was still the best, there were still bartenders who are way more experienced than I was, but at that point, I felt I was much, much more complete than the past two Diageo competitions. And at that point, yes, I have much more room to grow, but I think this will set the tone for the next, you know, how many years.
2: Because you came back and then soon after uh, Amakasian Appreciation won the 10th spot of Asia's 50 best bars, right, in 2016. Yeah, yes. They must have had a huge impact on you guys.
1: Uh, it did, it did, but not as much as we thought. So 2016, because I was doing competitions throughout my whole career up to the point that the marketing for and Appreciate was just always there, I guess also doing very well in the competition, helped boost the bar's name. Just to give you an idea, so 2015, out of about 60 bartenders, I was ranked 25th in the world. That's a big deal. So I guess that translated into the bar doing very well. Then in 2016, yes, we were announced 10 best bars in Asia. We appeared in local publications and then people started to come. This must be the best bar in Malaysia, so we'll all go. And when I say we all go, we're getting families like mom, dad, sister, brother would all come to the bar because they thought it was a restaurant. Globally, of course, it propelled us onto a global scene a little bit more. We got more guest bartenders who wanted to come do guest shifts. But I wouldn't say that after we got to the 10 best bar in Asia 2016, I wouldn't say that the business grew exponentially. It was kind of about the
2: same. Do you think it's because it was also the start of the cocktail bar boom and everyone was opening a bar? I think there was also the 2015 Singapore Cocktail Festival. Everyone was coming in and taking a slice yeah. of that pie.
1: Yes, yes. I think you're absolutely right. So 2016 is the time when a lot of bars and chaos started to open. People were looking for something new since they were already at Omakase for three years. So yeah, we saw our customers less because they were actually bar hopping and trying all the other bars. Because that was our goal, actually, with which was to open up the industry. It took three years to do it. But yeah, we have bars to go to now. We have bars that are trying to do good cocktail programs. So it's encouraging to see.
2: And I think finances is something you've mentioned before that was something you struggled with. I think especially when the GST and the SST hit.
1: Yeah, as a new business owner, I would say even three years into it, I was still a young entrepreneur. So still many things that I did not understand. And I did not have a team that could help the learning process. As a team, like, I didn't have a full-time accountant. I didn't have a full-time like, management team. It was just like me and Carl managing the whole thing. But yeah, as a young entrepreneur, we dealt with the punches. And one of them was to try to keep the business afloat with maintaining the cash flow. But what I never anticipated was there are more costs on the outside of the business that actually eats into your profits. We to make a certain amount of money. You have revenue tax. I knew there was revenue tax for the business, but I didn't know how much. So, at the end of the year, like we had enough profits, but it will all go to pay tax. So, then we had nothing to push forward for the following year. The business would have been all right if we were not gung ho young entrepreneurs because we tried opening a new outlet in 2015, Sparrow. So, that greatly affected our cash flow because our money went there. 2015. Think the styles are not aligned in terms of business. Because while opening Sparrow, like the contractor stole money and ran away. So that also left a big dent in our cash flow. And then, yeah, that GST and SST, because I was not an accountant, I did not how, know how to actually properly uh, navigate it. So that was eating into the profits a little bit, a little bit here, a little bit there. they just compounded over the years. And when like I said, we we're just dealing with the punches that it comes, So it's just like trying to get help at that time. Can you help me? Do you think you can sort out of my accounts? Or oh, you should refer to a new accountant, but she's too expensive or oh, shit. Okay, what do I do? So we try to still make it work. But yeah, it was just really a struggle since 2015, to be honest.
2: So what would have been the biggest lesson for you looking back? What would you do differently?
1: Do differently is get someone who can advise you on the finances because that's ultimately what you're in it for business is to make money. Yes, the romantic side is to build a bar and a concept and a a great place to go to. But ultimately, the bottom line is money. I was not willing to invest more money in someone who can manage the money. I was like trying to get by with the cheapest possible option, which was getting you the basics like bookkeeping and, and that's about it, which was not enough if you wanted to prolong your business. So that is what I'm doing for my current brand, which is getting someone who actually knows about finances and can advise you whether this is a good decision, not a good decision, what you need to do next, or you know how to work around it.
2: In November 2019, you actually had a conversation with Carl. Can you share a bit about how you came to the decision to close in December?
1: Well, it came down to money. Is this still a feasible thing to keep on just plodding on and trying to recover? but it's not actually recovering because we were just able to pay off our stocks month and month. I was actually running to retail shops to buy on cash daily basis because our accounts were basically being backlisted. So it's a constant struggle that I don't want it to sound morbid, but it's like when you reach that point in your life, if you have so much debt, people decide to commit suicide. So it's like, if we can't continue this business healthily, I think we should stop it so that we can do other things to recover back this cost and set it straight.
2: So what was the plan yeah. when you decided to close the bar down? I mean, must have been lots of things that you had to start shutting down.
1: Yes and no. Yes and no. Because while I already decided to shut down the business, previously I already signed the new tenancy agreement because I thought it would follow through. But then things just compounded. At the end of 2019, I was like, okay, let call it quits. So I had already a plan to take over 100% and do something new. There was not much to do in terms of closing down because I already signed a new agreement. It was just a matter of whether I could renovate or not. I was already downsizing my inventory listing. So like I was not buying a lot of stock in the last few months of operation. I didn't have many staff. I had one staff with us. So that was not difficult to manage. I mean, the brand was shutting down, but the bar, I was still going to continue it. So I could hang on to the equipment. I could hang on to whatever existing stock that was still there. It was just a matter of time when I could continue running in that space.
2: After that, you were at Los Sombreros and also you started the Bar Class Academy Asia.
1: So I guess 2016 to 2019, I'm still young, just try whatever, you know. People were asking me to do this, do that. Okay, let's see what partnerships work and what don't. I'm paying the price for it now, but I guess rather learn it before than now, where the partnerships work, how much goes into building a new brand. A lot of sombreros, I guess, stem from... My itchy hands. Because Sparrow failed. There's something in me as a PJ boy that I said maybe I could still do something in PJ and offer something to PJ people. But it was very, very difficult. It was an uphill battle for the full two years that we were operating.
2: Why do you think so? Different market,
1: different demographics, different location. So like in the city centre, you have a more variety of customers. You have locals, you have expats, you have tourists. Everyone's in the city basically. And you have urban professionals. Whereas in PJ, you get more of the neighborhood crowd. So neighborhood crowd are looking for value. They're looking for happy hour. They are looking for experiences, but I guess we were a bit no experience in a sense because my dreams were very simple. We weren't doing the Instagram thing or very fancy garnish or whatever. I did try it. It did help. Like I was doing something out of my comfort zone for a lot of sombreros, like having umbrellas in, in my cocktails. It helped, but yeah, it was just very different demographic, very different mindset. We didn't have enough food options. It was an expensive lesson, but I also learned a lot from doing that business. Bar Class Academy, on the other hand, we started actually in 2016 under Red Impressions. So I started off quite well because there was no one else doing education at the time. Even now, for Barrage Education, we're still the only one. We started with the industry in mind, trying to offer them skills and knowledge. Because people, customers would come to us and say, you know, XYZ bar doesn't make good drinks. And we're like, this is a big problem. Come to KL, you can't even get good drinks except at my bar. So that was an issue I tried to fix with education. We catered to the industry a little bit. But then we found a lot more consumers signing up for our courses. And again, it was still back to the bottom line. We need to make money. And so we catered our courses more to the consumers because they were paying us. And then it took a couple of years. And then we rebranded to Bar Class Academy Asia. We have new partners. Alcohol suppliers basically so then we started to try to cater back to the industry but at the same time also maintaining the consumer base so now it's a bit of a 50 50 but now we have to replan everything again because of covid
2: so speaking of covid how has that impacted you and your industry
1: really really difficult and really really good Really, really difficult in the sense of not having a proper job for nine months. So not having salaries. And closing down the business, there are closing costs which you need to recover. Full disclosure, there have been a couple of months where my wallet was close to zero. There's nothing in the bank. So that was worrying. Very, very worrying. But good in the sense that now there are people who have given me opportunities that luckily I took. If it wasn't for me taking them, I would have been stupid. So like when Chef Takashi of Cilatro reached out to me and said, would you like to sell cocktails? And that led to the owner of Mikasa liking what I did, saying, hey, would you like to help us with the revamp of the restaurant? You can do your own brand in Mikasa. I said, yeah, I just need a space to work. So yeah, 2019 has been worse for the better, even mentally. I went to the lowest low, almost depression. Cause like, what do I do with my life? The country is going crazy, not allowing alcohol, drink, driving, everything. But in hindsight, it made me realize what I really love doing, which is Spartan. There's nothing else that trumps it. So how do I make it work? Fortunately, doors have opened. I get to do it again. I guess when you go to the lowest low, you just need to open up. So previously to this year, I guess I was still very hard-minded. I I was already running Omakasura appreciate. Yes, there were years that were in a way failing, but I think I know how to recuperate from this. So I was building a new business concept, but I still wasn't exactly reaching out to people. I was like, I think I can still do this on my own. But then, And this year, I was like, okay, I I don't think I can do all this on my own. So I started reaching out to people and talking to people. And I guess that really helped build a better understanding. Like some people will just ask questions that make you question whether it's the right way to do this or not. Like what's the best way forward? Do we do one bar? Do we move back? When do we execute? Make my mind a bit more open this year. Willing to accept more advice or ideas and opinions. So Mizukami is now my new bar collective. So Mizukami means mizu in Japanese means water. Kami in Japanese means God and Kami in our language means us. So I tried to build like a a community. I was building a membership program, like flow with water, go with the bunches. For two nights, I could not sleep. How do I make this work? I was thinking of it, how? And it came to a collective. So rather than have two bars, different concepts, they call it sister bars, like Kohli and Pahit. Similar management, but different concepts, different. So I just wanted one brand to kind of feature throughout. So then I said, can I do this and do sub concepts? So this is the one in Mikasa, it's Mizukami Highball. Mizukami Highball is basically a reference from the Izakaya concept because it's in the restaurant called Shiso, which is casual Japanese. I figured, okay, then, you know, that kind of clientele and that kind of concept would do well with Whiskey highballs, which is whiskey and soda, basic gin and tonics. Classic cocktails, of course, that's never going to run away from wherever I build menus. And we're also doing zero proof, so no alcohol. So yeah, Mizukami is now a collective. Highball is at Mikasa now. You can find me there six days a week. Mizukami Cocktail, that's the one that's going to be in the Ming and space that is slated for Q2 next year. As a collective, I'm trying as well to see if we can work with different venue partners to feature our menu so that you can essentially eventually do like a Mizukami Bar Hop and have different drinks in different locations.
2: What's the best way to put your foot into the industry?
1: Find a bar, get a job, and try to stay there for a while, like six months or one year. Even if it's not a good bar, at least you get to learn why that bar didn't work. Then when you progress to another place that's a bit more professional, then you get to identify, oh, why this bar is much better than this bar. Rather than if you go in for two, three months, and then basically you say, oh, it's not suiting my working style, so I quit. You still haven't obtained the grasp of that business or what you can do. To give you an example, when I took the management job, the owners were just like, you just create cocktails that cater to the customers here. And that is a challenge that you should fulfill as a bartender. It doesn't matter that you can't learn what you want to learn eventually, but at least try to make the best. If you have pushed that envelope to the limits, then you can say, okay, this place isn't working for me anymore. Try to stick to a place. Unless it's really, really shitty, then you can try to find a better bar. But ultimately, it's really what you make out of it. You negotiate with your owners or your managers to help you put something on the menu. It's proactiveness. If you think the bar is going to give you a career, I'm sorry. I don't think it's that way. It's the other way around. So I personally worked hard at every venue that I had. Like, what can I do? Should I do this? I talked to my owners. Can I implement this menu? Can I buy these products? Of course, there's going to be a negotiation. Yes and no. But have you done it? If you have not done it, you're pampered. You're waiting for something to happen, but you're not making it happen. If you want to be a bartender, you've got to do what it takes.
2: Well, thank you so much, Sean, for all of your time. I normally end with all these questions. So the first one is, do you feel like you have found your why?
1: Yes, I have definitely found my why. In terms of being a pioneer of the Malaysian bar industry, to be the example, to be that leader, I don't have to be the best. I would like if someone could be better than me, anyone younger who strives to be better than me, but at least from my standpoint, is someone who's trying to push boundaries. There's someone who's still maintaining standards. There's still someone who really loves the bartending craft that's why i'm still working six days a week i love mixing drinks.
2: and what kind of legacy do you want to leave behind
1: i think i've already left the legacy but now it's enforcing that legacy i opened up Omakase appreciate and everyone validates it at that was the start of the cocktail scene although we were not the first speakeasy, but we were the first bar to really do cocktails 100 that i guess the legacy i want to leave is 30 years down the line, 50 years down the line, that my name will appear in some Malaysian cocktail book where I helped to build the scene. That's
2: it. And what do you think are the most important qualities of a successful bartender?
1: One, responsible. Responsible for your job. Responsible for what you do. Second quality is to be humble. And no matter where you've achieved, there's always someone better than you. There's always something you don't know. That's why I like talking to guests because there's something I don't know. So especially like international, where you come from, what's good in your city. These are knowledge that's invaluable because you never know you'll be talking to somebody from the same place or similar location next week. Many years ago in Sunway, my chef, a colleague, he said he went to turkey and he brought back a bottle mineral water bottle he said sean you sh- i think you should like this because you're in alcohol and everything what is it it's palinka palinka is an eastern european brandy so i had never heard of it okay this is palinka so he gave it to me he said, you can have it I really had a lot in turkey many years later i kept that bottle with me and there was this one night that a couple of Caucasians came into the bar. One was an American and one was a Romanian. So we were just chit-chatting and I would occasionally ask, what do you normally drink or what is the alcohol that's from where you are? And then I had known that Romania also has palinka. So then I was just like, we we're just chatting. I can't remember the exact point, but I said, I have something for you. So I went back to my office and got this bottle of palinka and I poured him a shot. And then he drank it. It's like, what is this? It's like palinka. It's like, how do you know palinka? Yeah, because my friend went to Turkey and everything. And he was like, how do you have palinka? You know, it's like, it's not available in this part of the world. Like, yeah, my chef friend and I kept it until today. So you're lucky day today, you actually have palinka. So it's these instances that you never know will happen. And it's your, in a way, I guess the satisfaction and part of the job as a person that I love, connecting with people on that level. So yeah, it's a hard job. It's a physical job, but if you really want to be in this, don't give up.
2: And where can people go to connect with you and support your work and find out what you're doing?
1: At the moment, you can come to Mikasa Hotel. We are in Shiso Dining. and am there six days a week, usually off on Sunday. So other days you can find me. Q2 next year, I'll be more based in Nishikami Cocktail. That will act as our HQ if that happens. Hopefully Q2. But yes, currently high ball.
0: And that was the end of episode 34. The show notes and transcript for this episode can be found at sodismywide.com forward slash 34. If you want to get updates on the latest episodes, as well as other fascinating things I learned over the course of the week, you can sign up for the weekly newsletter at the show notes link too. And staging for next Sunday, because we'll be meeting the former CEO of IBM Malaysia, who also happens to be its very first female CEO. We talked about her life journey Transitioning from a technical to marketing division, why she took two sabbaticals at the peak of her career, and how she managed to stay relevant and thrive in her role as CEO. See you next Sunday.